turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not from the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of worship and celebration. But Father, we thank you for every day of our life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for him, always and forever, above all things. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our King. And Father, we come this morning to give thanks to you for all that you've done for us, that you've redeemed us from death and from destruction, that you've given us the promise of eternal life and the hope that we have in him, who alone is our Savior. Thank you for Jesus. And Father, thank you that you are the great and mighty God. There is no other God besides you. You are the one who created the heavens and the earth. Thank you, Father, for your creative work. It is an awesome thing to consider. It is awesome, Lord, as we give thanks to you, for your creation speaks to us. Open our hearts this morning. Help us to understand that we might root and ground our worldview in your living word, which is living and active, divinely inspired in every way. Father, minister to us that our faith might grow and increase to the glory and honor of Jesus. It is in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. You might remember that last week we talked about the topic of this sermon was going to focus on biology and psychology. And uh, that was something I intended to do, but as I began my research this week, it became obvious, especially under the time constraints of having the Lord's table today, as well as all the other things that are happening preliminary to our missions conference, that there was no way in the world that we could cover these this two topics together. And so therefore I decided about Friday that the smart thing to do was to divide them in two, because I didn't think you'd probably appreciate being here about an hour and a half uh, listening to me so-called preach, but I'm going to trust that God's going to minister this morning because we're going to focus upon just biology. And this sermon's entitled, How Our Biblical Worldview Impacts the Way We View the Science of Life. That's what biology is. And as we begin this morning, let's just define again, as we do each Sunday, what do we mean by worldview? And that is the term refers to an ideology, philosophy, movement, or religion, a theology, if you will, that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relation to God and the world. That's the biblical worldview. And the category that we're going to talk about this morning is the one highlighted in red. That's the study of the origin and development of living organisms. And ask the question, what about 
light. What about it? Where does it come from? How did it come about? Let's define biology, if you will, this morning. Very simply, the biblical, or I should say the dictionary definition of biology is it's the science of life. The science that deals with all forms of life, including their classification, physiology, chemistry, and interactions. It's the branch of knowledge that deals with living organisms and vital processes. You know, since 1859, when Darwin's The, Speech, the Origin of the Species was published, it's been a dilemma for Christians to square their view of creation with the theory of evolution. Because that's the science that's taught today with respect to how we came about and how this earth and the whole universe came about. It was an evolutionary process. We'll go, go into greater detail later about that. But the fact is, it's been a struggle from that very time. And also, I can remember reading Dr. James Kennedy, and he said, prior to the publication of The Origin of Species by J Charles Darwin, he said, actually, it was not too creditable to be an atheist. It was kind of embarrassing. But ever since that time, it's become more respectable. And today, in our time, we find atheism taking not only an alternate view of how the universe came about, but a belligerent one. And matter of fact, they're out to persecute Christians, and ever since they were. Only read the, the, the writings of Richard Dawkins if you don't believe that. He's just one of many that are out to eliminate Christianity, religion, in every aspect and facet of life. So the Christian has a dilemma. What do we believe, and what, why do we believe it? It's a struggle, because we're trying to reconcile our faith in the Bible with the scientific facts of evolution, whereby man evolved over a period of millions, or maybe even billions of years, from a single solitary cell that came about by cosmic accident, spontaneous generation, or spontaneous origin, as it's called. This sermon's going to deal with just that aspect of our counter to the evolutionary worldview, the human secular wor worldview. And we're going to talk this morning about what a biblical worldview is with respect to creationism, because that's important to understand if we are going to ground our worldview in the living word of God. What's the origin of life? The key idea that we're talking about it's science is relearning an old lesson. The more one discovers about the universe, the more one discovers design, intelligent design, as it's called today. Dr. Dean Kenyon is a former evolutionist, and he's a microbiologist that became a convert to intelligent design. And he made this comment that I've captured here. When all relevant lines of evidence are taken into account, and all the problems squarely faced, I think we must conclude that life owes its inception to a source outside of nature. And I think that's a profound statement. And the next slide deals with his four premises that established this in his mind. And I want to recount them without going into a great amount of detail. You could spend a whole class session on just each one of these premises. Hours galore. But let's talk about them in in a, from a macro viewpoint, the impossibility of the spontaneous origin of genetic information. 
And this is what Dr. Kenyon says. It's impossible to even conceive how that could happen. And we'll talk later about some of the details involved with that. That's the spontaneous generation that is so prevalent among evolutionists. The fact that most attempts to duplicate the conditions for chemical evolution yield non-biological material. It just comes out that way. It's a fact. The unfounded, thirdly, the unfounded nature of the belief that prebiotic conditions encouraged a trend toward the formation of L-amino acids. L-amino acids are the building block of nature. Every one of us, uh, plants, animals, all of us, contain L-amino acids. But he goes on to say the, geographic, the geochemical uh, evidence that O2, which, by the way, is oxide, as, as Carissa was able to point out to me this morning, it's called dioxygen in some respects, but it's uh, molecular oxygen. It is basically an allotrope of uh, the, elemental, the elemental oxygen that's found on Earth at the inception of Earth. And basically, uh, it's, uh, it's always been called dioxin or dioxide or molecular oxygen, and it distinguishes itself from the basic element of oxygen. The point that Dr. Kenyon's trying to make here is that that chemical, or that chemical being present in the very early stages of the development of Earth, would have had a very profound effect upon the creation of biological or, or organic material. It would tend to make it decompose. And there was a, there was a tremendous amount of that kind of oxygen, O2 as it's called, O3 by the way is ozone, but there's a tremendous amount of oxygen, of that kind of oxygen which would have a negative impact upon these materials by which uh, life was supposed to just spontaneously emerge. So when you look at that, that's one of some of the scientific facts. That's just Dr. Kenyon's viewpoint on the whole matter. But the, the thing is, we need to understand that there's a stark contrast in the biblical worldview and the secular humanist worldview, which we'll focus on this morning. And let's talk just for a moment about the biblical worldview, because that embraces creationism. The scientific theory that proposes, and by the way, I want you to catch that comment, the scientific theory that proposes that each living organism was created separately in much their present form by a supernatural being. Remember, we talked about the theistic worldview, the theology being theism, the belief, as you would put it succinctly, in a supernatural God. It is that God who created life, who created the design for life. But the belief that God created all things, including men and women, in his image requires faith. It can't happen any other way. And this is what we talked about before in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We look at that. The whole thing talks about natural man cannot understand spiritual things because they're spiritually appraised. And a biblical worldview is going to require a Christian to believe by faith that God was the one who did it. Now, we'll get into more greater details about that, but the fact is, he says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. Created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says, then God, verse 26, actually, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Later on, he said in 27, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he went on to say, in the words of Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, he said, from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. These were Jesus' words. But the fact is, we began to look at the sharp contrast in secular humanism and biblical worldview creationism, creationism, this next slide kind of points it out. I can, I can remember printing out and reading most of uh, Manifesto 1 and 2. Manifesto 3 is not nearly, or Manifesto 2000 is not nearly as, as uh, required reading or as comprehensive. The Manifesto 1, remember, was written in 1933. The Manifesto 2 was written in 1973. So it goes on to define how man came about. Manifesto 1 declares that man is the part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. Manifesto 2 claims that science affirms the human species as an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. And the Manifesto 2000 goes on to state the unique message of, man, of humanism on the current world stage is its commitment to scientific naturalism, another word for evolution. Scientific naturalism enables human beings to construct a coherent worldview disentangled from metaphysics or theology and based on the sciences. So secular humanism becomes squarely down into the camp of, of, of evolution. It can't do anything else but come down because it's eliminated God from every aspect of life because man is able by his own reason and by his own intellect to decide for himself what's good and what's bad. Let's look for a moment, and I got this off a website, by the way, by, published by a believer called allaboutthejourney.org. I would encourage you to, uh, to go ref uh, refresh your memory on some things by this, and he talks about, in this next two slides, about the seven stages of evolution, beginning with cosmic evolution. And that's the time, it says, cosmic evolution is the development of space, time, matter, and energy from nothing. That's what scientists call the Big Bang. That's what happened at the very beginning of creation, or the beginning of cosmic evolution, as the secular humanists look at it. And basically, out of nothing came time, energy, matter, space. Didn't exist before. Suddenly, because of the Big Bang, they existed. And as a consequence, what took place was stellar evolution. And that's the development of complex stars from, a chaotic, from the chaotic first elements that were present. And by the way, the elements that were present is surmised to be hydrogen, helium, and a variety of subatomic particles which somehow condensed into stars. And that's how the stellar evolution came about. Then came chemical evolution. And chemical evolution is the development of those chemical elements from an original two. And the original two were hydrogen and helium. And some surmise that maybe lithium was among those elements. And as a result of the incredible heat and pressure within stars, these original elements somehow evolved into the other 88 elements that we know today. That's how they came about. Basically, they emerged from hydrogen and helium, possibly lithium, and subatomic particles to become 88 basic 
elements in the universe we find today. Then there's the planetary, the planetary evolution. And this meant that complex chemical elements were somehow ejected, possibly at the violent deaths of stellar life stars or life cycles, releasing great clouds of swirling compounds which somehow formed into finely tuned solar systems, including our own. They just emerged. That's amazing how swirling clouds can do such things. But nevertheless, organic evolution. And this gets down to what we're talking about in terms of the evolutionary things that we understand today. That means the development of organic life from inorganic manner or matter, like a rock. This, this is also known as spontaneous generation. The planet Earth began as a molten mass of matter billions of years ago and cooled off into solid rock. Then came rain, or water. Rained on the rocks for millions of years, forming great oceans, which eventually became prebiotic rock soup, as our author calls it. Some, some scientists call it slime that came about, a, a kind of a prebiotic slime. And as a result, that became alive and, uh, and spawned the first self-replicating uh, living organisms. Now, when you think about the whole theology behind, if you want to call it that, the philosophy, theology, the worldview behind evolution, I contend that it requires a lot more faith to believe that than it ever does to believe in a supernatural theistic God who created the heavens and the earth. A lot more faith is going to be required. You've got to assume a lot of things. And by the way, empirical science basically is based on observation. That's what science is supposed to be all about. Observation where you can see how things happen and you can test them and you can replicate them and you can verify their correctness. But uh, when, when it comes to evolution today, it's been decided. Now, this was a theory in Darwin's term, times, but now it's accepted science. It's just a fact. There's no discussion anymore. And if you do discuss it or you try to suggest some other kind, a process besides evolution, uh, the discussion's over. We'll talk about that later. Macroevolution is all living creatures sharing a common ancestor. And this is when we really get down to the aspect of what Darwin's theory was all about. It's a relatively simple, single-celled organism which evolved from inorganic matter, that's the rock soup or the slime, if you will, and essentially the birds and bananas and fishes and flowers, every living thing has that common ancestor because suddenly, with the organic evolution, what non-life became life. It happened just that way. Microevolution, by the way, is that variation and variety of traits expressed in sexually compatible kinds of organisms. In other words, the differences between various kinds of dogs or cats or horses and things of that matter. I use an illustration in my, uh, my first sermon this morning. I'll do it again. Uh, Rita and I have had, for 13 years now, a little four-legged friend uh, that's a, a corgi. That's a dog. Uh, he's a unique that He's got very short legs. Uh, one of our 
daughter's friends called him a hovercraft. So he's, he's just unique. He's got very short legs, uh, a long body, a fox-like face. And if you go back about four or 500 years, you'll find them. Uh, they've been around for a long time, but there's a couple of species. We have a Welsh Pembroke corgi, which doesn't have a tail. Now, we gave him a head start on that by docking his tail when he was a puppy. Sometimes they're born without tails. But the cardigan corgi, which is his cousin, looks a lot like him, comes in different colors for the most part, has a tail. You don't dock his tail, but he still has a tail when they're born. Every single cardigan has a tail. Corgi probably does, but it's going to get docked. The fact is that they're the same species. They've evolved by microevolution over a period of about four or five hundred years. So much that the Queen of England loves them as well. She's just got about four or five, well, she's got six or seven of things running around all the time. If you ever see a, a, a video or uh, some playback of the King, you'll always see corgis around her feet, inevitably. It happens. That's just a, that's just a simple example. But the fact is, is that this is what we call today, uh, if you were uh, majoring in animal husbandry at Texas A&M, this is selected breeding, that you bring about the best of a species. And that's been going on for a long time, and that's why we have the differences we have. Let's look more specifically at Darwin's theory of evolution as he expresses it, and as it's surmised. All life is related and has descended from a common ancestor. That one cell, living organism that spontaneously uh, originated, and that became all living things. That's what he talks about in his book, The Tree of Life. And basically, the problem is, is that there's some fossil records that won't verify it, and there's some things that you really have to go out on the limb to accept. I guess that's a pun in a way. Anyway, as random genetic mutations occur within an organism's genetic code, the beneficial mutations are preserved because they aid survival, a process known as natural selection. And basically, that's kind of the survival of the fittest, some of the philosophy that emerged from this. As a matter of fact, in that whole philosophy of the survival of the fittest came the so-called, and I put this in quotes, science of eugenics, which is very, very popular. As a matter of fact, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, was a big believer in eugenics, that you use this process to weed out the undesirable elements of a race, and you try to strengthen the desirable elements of the species so that a better race, better mankind emerged. Popular theory back, especially in the 20s and the 30s, until the Nazis gave it a really bad time in terms of its publicity, because they were great practitioners, if you will, of eugenics. Over time, beneficial mutations accumulate, and the result is an entirely different organism, not just a variation of the original, but an entirely different creature. And that's really the point of contention, as we'll discuss in greater detail. The next slide shows a skeptic descent from Darwinism. And by the way, I watched a DVD, a DVD I'll highly recommend it to you, or the book as well, called The Case for a Creator by Lee Strobel, who was a former atheist who became a believer as a consequence of watching his, life, his wife's life change. And he saw what had transformed her thinking, 
the way she lived, and as a consequence, he began to really research and explore, as was his nature, uh, these claims of the Creator, of the Christ. And the case for a Creator is very stimulating, in that um, he goes in, he, he describes a situation where 600, over 600 PhDs, highly educated scientists, philosophers, biologists, all sorts of disciplines within this realm, signed the document that says, we are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. I, I, I just I want to interject a comment to you. On Thursday night of this week, Green and I were watching a special on PBS. As a matter of fact, it was about the, um, the wars raging over the language to be used in textbooks, science textbooks in particular, uh, in Texas. And that being my native state, I took an interest in it. But Texas and California, being the two largest states and orderers or purchasers of textbooks, essentially have a sit-down, a tete-a-tete, I guess, every few years to decide what kind of language is going to be included in their textbooks about science and everything else, for that matter, history as, as well. In this case, what had happened was that some, some language had been inserted in the previous versions that talked about the strengths and weaknesses of the Darwinian theory. And the secularists wanted to take out any reference whatsoever to weaknesses. Since Darwinism, or evolution, was accepted as science, no debate, it's science. They wanted nothing that would misdirect the thinking of school book children, or school children, into thinking there could be any other explanation. And especially they did not want any reference or inferred reference to the words intelligent design. Because that violated the separation of church and state. And heaven forbid we can't allow that to happen. So nothing in the textbook must give any kind of credence or validity to a theory about intelligent design. That's what the whole issue was about. And that's what it's come to in our day and age. Evolution is an accepted science. There's no more debate, discussion about it. It's no longer a theory. Though that's what it was proposed when it was written in 1859, but now it's just the accepted science. There's some evidence that argues against this. I just want to briefly mention that this morning. The negative evidence of the fossil record is one thing in itself, that they just cannot see to, to link those one-cell animals or creatures with multi-celled complex creatures. One of the individuals on Lee Strobel's DVD mentioned that if you looked at the, the creation process as taking place over a 24-hour period of time, he said, in the first few hours, nothing happens. Suddenly, about midway through the process, one-cell creatures appear. And then suddenly, at about two minutes to midnight, before it's all over with, a whole series of creatures appear, complex creatures. This is called the Cambrian Explosion. All of a sudden, bam, there they are in the fossil record. And so there's just, in the minds of some people, that kind of gives evidence to the fact that there was a creation that took place. 
There's also the evidence of cosmology. And many centuries ago, Aristotle even gave expression to this. And then it was taken up by Muslim uh, or Islamic scholars, scientists, if you will. And then also Thomas Aquinas in Christendom took it up in, uh, many centuries ago. But it goes like this. It's the Kalam theory of the cosmological argument. It says everything that has a beginning of its existence has a cause for its existence. The universe has a beginning of its existence. Therefore, the universe has a cause of its existence. On Lee Strobel's tape, A Case for the Creator, a man by the name of William Lane Craig, who is a highly credentialed and studied individual, uh, came to the conclusion, he said he put the the Kalam argument like this. And as a matter of fact, he's one who, in the uh, philosophy of science and, and, uh, and theology, has come forth with this theory. He, sa- he says, actually, what it really means is this. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And this gave rise to a lot of other arguments, obviously, to try to counter it, but I think his... His argument is pretty profound. The fact is that science looked upon the universe until just in almost in our lifetime, at least in my lifetime, because I'm an old guy. The fact is is that it was looked upon as being eternal, static, and it was infinite. It had no beginning and no end. Eternal, infinite, static. It was always the same way. And then... A guy by Einstein came around and began to postulate that that was not necessarily the case. And a guy by the name of Hubble discovered through evidence and observation, empirical science, that the universe did have a beginning. As a matter of fact, what he discovered is that as you, as you survey the cosmos, the universe, you'll notice that there are galaxies that are moving away. And the further out you look, you find out the quicker or the faster those galaxies appear to be uh, distancing themselves from our galaxy. And so it was obvious, and this is how the cosmological evolution theory came about to a great degree, that suddenly the Big Bang occurred, and those, that matter, those stellar systems, those planetary systems were, were propelled out into eternity or out into the outer reaches of the universe, and so therefore it is pretty much accepted, therefore, that the universe has a beginning. If it has a beginning, it has a cause. The question is, what is that cause? And obviously a biblical worldview says the cause is God. The evidence of biological machines and information is another thing that in our lifetime has come to pass in ways that are just um, unimaginable to our mothers and fathers and our grandfathers and our grandmothers. It says, with respect to the biological machines, that the complexity of life forms found in molecular biology provide great weight to the argument of intelligent design. If you look at the intricacy and the complexity of biological life forms, molecular biology, and we're talking about in this case, it just augurs very well for the existence of an intelligent designer. It didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by evolution. Also, DNA. 
The DNA molecule, which is the language of life, functions like the most complex software program ever designed. As a matter of fact, it's far more complex than any man's software program ever will be. And from that emerges the whole description of how the cell takes form and how the, uh, the, the groups of cells began to, to uh, form into a, a, a life form. It's incredibly, when you look at this, biological machines and biological information and DNA, it is an awesome thing to consider. Then there's the teleological argument. And William Paley, back in 1802, made this argument. I think it still stands today. He says, the complex interworkings of a watch necessitate an intelligent designer. Therefore, it stands to reason that as a watch, the com- the com- as with a watch, the complexity of X, X meaning a particular organ or an organism, a structure of the solar system, life itself, the universe, anything complex necessitates a designer. If you look at a watch, and by the way, if you took apart all the, the pieces of a watch, especially a watch as we related to, to made by the Swiss about, about a century ago, the, we always looked at uh, the Swiss of having a tremendous ability to build complex watches that would just last forever. But if you took all those pieces, put them in a the box, disassembled, shook them up, threw them out on the table, how many times do you think you have to do that before you come up with the finished product? I don't think you're going you're gonna to succeed very well. And you might have a million people doing the same thing a million times, and you will never ever come up with the assembled watch. It is the work of a master designer. And the craftsmanship required to put it together and make it work is an awesome thing to consider. It doesn't happen by accident. You can take those and you can throw it out a billion times on a table and it will still come out as a disassembled watch that will not tell you one thing about the time. That's just the fact. A fellow by the name of Michael Denton, uh, Denton, who is a molecular biologist, said this, Paley was not only right in asserting the existence of of an an analogy between life and machines, but also was remarkably prophetic in guessing that the technological ingenuity realized in living systems is vastly in, ex- in excess of anything yet accomplished by man. And that's a profound statement. And by the way, he's best known for his book, Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, that was published in 1985. That fellow's name is Michael Denton. Let me show, share with you two quotes by Darwin. He said, first, natural selection begins only by taking advantage of slight successive variations. She can never take a great leap and a sudden leap, but must advance by short and sure, though slow, steps. And then he said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And what we're going to talk about in this, in this instance is what they call irreducible complexity. A simple analogy of this is a mousetrap. A mousetrap is actually a perfect example of irreducible complexity. Why? 
It has five basic parts. If you take away any one of those five parts, I don't care which one it is, it will not work. And microbiology has shown that the cells themselves have complex machinery that enable it to accomplish its purpose. For instance, with a mousetrap, you have a catch that holds the bait. You have a powerful spring. It has to be that way if you're going to, uh, to gain an advantage over the mouse. You have a thin rod called the hammer. You have a holding bar to secure the hammer in place. And then you have a platform to mount the mousetrap. Those five things are there. If you take away any five of them, the mousetrap will never work in a million years. That's just a simple fact. That's irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is a very sophisticated argument when applied against the theories of evolution. Because their com life is complex, far more complex today than we ever thought it ever would be. I can remember some of the science classes I had, which were, uh, you know, just elementary level kindergarten stuff in comparison to the things that we understand today. And that wasn't just a mere uh, 60 some odd years ago. Anyway, let's lastly conclude that this theory in crisis about Evan, uh, or Darwin's theory of evolution it is a theory in crisis in light of the tremendous advances we made in molecular biology, biochemistry, and genetics over the past 30 years. And that's what I said was written in 1985, even more so today than it was when he wrote his book in 1985. So the fact is, is that science has even began to weaken and completely really distort and disprove the evolutionary theories that were so commonly accepted. And I know there's a variety of opinions out there, and we'll talk about that in a very succinct way. But the fact is, is that that's the truth. By the research that you can do, and if, I, if you don't believe my research, I challenge you to go out on the web. There's just thousands of books written by Christian creationists and by Christian intelligent designers who could give you great reason to believe that God had a hand in the creative work of this universe. The source of all knowledge, there is only one cause for the origin of information, and that is intelligence. And that's a comment made by a Dr. Stephen Meyer, who, by the way, is a scholar, a philosopher of science, and an advocate for intelligent design. He's also the one who helped found at the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute, which is a, a very great organization behind the movement for intelligent design. And Meyer really proposes that there's only one cause for the origin of information, and that's intelligence. So God is behind it all. And Psalm 19 says it so wonderfully, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours, pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. If you look at what God has done, how can you not stand in awe of the majesty of his creation and what the skies tell us? And by the way, night by night seems so insignificant, but actually, when do we best see God's creative work in the universe except at night when we can best get the view? Have you ever thought of the significance of where our solar system is placed in the universe, in the galaxy, in the Milky Way. It's at a perfect place 
for us to observe all kinds of, of God's creative work in the universe around us. We're ideally situated. We're not buried in the midst of our, our galaxy, but we're at its edge so we can see so many things. What an awesome thought it is that God has placed us here, not by accident, but by, by great purpose and intent. And let's look else, elsewhere as it says this about intelligent design. And this comes from, again, Stephen Meyer, the philosopher of science at the Discovery Institute. And he says this, Intelligent design is not a faith-based idea as the media attempts to portray it, nor is it based on a theistic belief, but rather it is based on the discovery of digital code and cells, miniature machines and cells, the fine-tuning of the laws of physics and chemistry, and standard ways of scientific reasoning about the remote past and the history of life. So what he's saying is intelligent design is not essentially a biblical worldview, but it is a discipline of science. It's a way of looking at the science of life. And we'll, we'll uh, discuss one other aspect of that, and that basically is this very next slide. Because it talks about a compromise, and I'm going to speak from some authority here, not because I'm a scientist with a Ph.D. or several Ph.D.s which stand before you. I'm not. I'm anything but that. But I do tell you from my perspective that I was once a theistic evolutionary. I was once one of those. I believe that what it says here, the belief is that God works through the natural process of evolution. And I believe that sincerely. Many, many years ago. Why? Well, first of all, I'm going to share in the next slide some reasons why that took place. But most of all, I didn't want to be looked upon as an ignoramus. I didn't want to be looked upon as uneducated or unsophisticated. But I wanted to be perceived as a person who had thought it out and came to a reasonable conclusion based on scientific facts. So if I couldn't accept what it said in Genesis chapter 1... Solely, I, surely I could accept the fact that God was the one who used creation as his tool, or used evolution as his tool, for the process of creation. It seemed like it was only reasonable to believe that. It's kind of on the fence, if you will, in every sense of the word. And there are men like William Lane Craig, who I mentioned, that talked and wrote a book about the Kalam theory, that believe the same thing. He's a theistic evolutionist. But the fact is... Creation in this context means that God created the first spark of life and then continually directed the creative process via the vehicle of evolution from that first spark to the ascension of human beings. That's how it came about. But however, if Adam and Eve were mythical characters, if they were symbolic of the results of evolution, if you will. Uh, it begins to really weaken the case of redemption, of original sin, and of Christ's reason to die for our sins. Think about the impact it has on the doctrine of salvation alone. Think about that, because it's a, an interesting thing to consider. So I would ask you to, uh, to, to understand the implications of what you say you believe. Matter of fact, just as an example, in, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 3, 
as it is in Matthew chapter 1, there is a genealogy of Christ. In Matthew, you have it from the perspective of Mary. In Luke, you have it from the perspective of Joseph, purportedly the son or the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a father, legally speaking. But starting there in verse 23, going through verse, 20, through verse 38, and it last concludes, it says, down to or back to Adam, the son of God. So from the biblical writer's standpoint, Adam was a reality. He was a real person. He was God's real creation. And he's, he's the one, that we mentioned in that verse of Scripture we read starting off this morning, he's the one who brought sin into the world because of his disobedience. But the one who brought salvation and righteousness was Jesus Christ. That's why he died, so that this man, who was slaved, enslaved to sin, might come alive in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, when you say you're a theistic evolutionist, and the, the, uh, the story is um, basically allegory. In other words, it's uh, kind of a, a statement or it's a symbolic work that's based on assumptions and based on, on hidden meanings, if you will. It could be spiritual or other in nature, but the fact is it's not something that you could literally accept as true. And you've got to look at Genesis as an allegory. And that's a problem. And that's, as a matter of fact, the next slide says, if evolution is true, then the story of the Garden of Eden and original sin must be viewed as nothing more than allegory, a view that undermines the significance of Christ's sinless life and sacrificial death on the cross. The condemnation and corruption brought on us by Adam's sin are the counterparts of the justification and sanctification made possible for us by Christ's righteousness and death. If Adam was not a historical uh, individual, and if his fall into sin was not historical, then the biblical doctrines of sin and Christ's atonement for it collapse. Then it was David Noble who wrote Understanding the Times. Let me share with you a personal note this morning. And this has to do with some lessons I learned uh, from a movie back in 1960. Uh, a fellow by the name actually of uh, Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee wrote a play in 1955 called Inherit the Wind. And in that play, by the way, which was loosely based upon the Scopes Monkey Trial, which took place in Tennessee in 1925. And the characters, which give, are given fictitious names, are really a guy by the name of Clarence Dow, who was, uh, Darrow, who was the defense attorney, and Frederick March, who represented a fellow by the name of William Jennings Bryan, and David Scopes, who was the guy who was the subject of the trial because he had dared teach evolution in the school. And in the movie, uh, especially in the movie, you'll get the impression that the town was ready to lynch this guy. And anything but that was, could be furthest from the truth. He absolutely he had no problems. He had no difficulties with the community. He went through this. He was a teacher. And he just basically taught on a substitute basis the theory of evolution, and, and they decided to really try to prosecute him. But the whole thing was made up, and what you would gather from this whole movie is how utterly ignorant fundamentalist Christians were, and how ashamed you would be if you just had the least inkling of common sense and decency. You no way in the world could come, you could uh, ever sympathize with those kind of characters. 
As a matter of fact, a trial lawyer, actually he was an attorney, a lifelong attorney, by the name of Arthur Garfield Hayes, who happened to be the general counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union uh, for over 30 years, until he died in 1954. And he put it, as he was observing the Scopes Monkey Trial in Tennessee in 1925, he said, this trial was a battle between two types of minds, the rigid, orthodox, accepted, unyielding, narrow, conventional mind, and the broad, liberal, critical, cynical, skeptical, skeptical and tolerant mind. This is what it was all about. This was the mindset of the people in Inherit the Wind. And movies have a powerful way of putting a message across. All of us know that. If you attend the movies, you can find there are those that stick in your mind, and they just you just can hardly get them out. You think about them maybe for days because of the message and the way that they're, they're written and the way they're acted. And Inherit the Wind had two guys by the name of Frederick March, who played William Jennings Bryan, and um, uh, Spencer Tracy, who played uh, the, the character of Clarence Darrow. And so these were two heavyweight actors in every sense of the word. And they did a magnificent job of putting forth the philosophy that these Christians in Tennessee, who were the cause of this whole thing, because they objected to the teaching of evolution, were so intolerant. And that's the message that comes about. And that's a persuasive message. You know, I'd like to add something else to you. You know, when I preached that sermon on judgment a few weeks ago, I'm sure you probably concluded that I'm a conservative Republican from the get-go. But preaching about this is not about being a Republican or a Democrat. Preaching about a biblical worldview is not about being a conservative or a liberal. It's about being a believer or an unbeliever. Preaching about a biblical worldview is preaching about what your whole foundation is. As we mentioned last week, when we're referring to, the, to the, uh, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 7 about building upon the solid rock or building upon the sand. That's what it's about. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with anything relative to that. Because I can tell you out of personal experience, from my own life experience, that back in the days when I was watching Inherit the Wind, I was as liberal an individual as could ever walk across the face of the earth. I was a big supporter of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. I thought government had a role, more than that, a duty to intervene in social engineering to change things and make them better. I can remember getting in an argument with my next-door neighbor who was an economics major at North Texas State University. And he said, as he was listening to my philosophy being espoused, he said, we can't afford to do those things. And I said, we can't afford not to. It's important that we do them. We just need to borrow wherever we need to borrow. And by the, by the way, surprisingly, in those days was the first time during great Johnson's Great Society days, we decided they were going to borrow from a, fund, a source of funds called the Social Security Trust. And so we did. And guess what? We just replaced it with IOUs. It's our money. 
It's our money, so we can borrow from that interest-free. The fact is, is that what a mistake we made in terms of how we're going to care for our children and our grandchildren in the future. There won't be anything left in that. We'll talk about that more under economics, but the fact is, is that my philosophy was as wrong-headed as it could be because you cannot social engineer your society as much as you like to. Only, the only thing that's going to change society is Jesus Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit to bring people to the knowledge of the truth that they might live according to Christ and might anchor their belief on a biblical worldview on the solid rock of Christ Jesus. That's the only way it's going to happen. So I just tell you that I came about that change from personal experience. It doesn't happen because I was born a conservative by, by any stretch of imagination. Actually, I was born a Democrat from a, from a group of people. Lyndon Johnson at one time was our congressional representative before he became a senator. He was a personal friend of my dearest aunt that, that was the one who raised my father. And I was, I was lucky to be in, to well plugged in. My father was in politics because he was a justice of the peace. And as a consequence, he ran for office every two years. And as a result, our whole family was involved in politics. Later on, after my dad died, my mother assumed the office and she ran for politics and ran for office. So we were well plugged in as Democrats in that day and age. And I only tell that as a result of telling you where I've come from and why I've changed my worldview. And it began in the 60s when I began reading the scripture. I can remember the very first time I read through the Bible from cover to cover. And then I can remember the second time I read through it from cover to cover. And then I remember the third time I did that. And I can remember reading through the New Testament in about a dozen different translations over the course of my early life. And the fact is, is the more I read the Word of God, the more convinced and convicted I became that that was the only way to ground your worldview. And it wasn't called that then. This is something relatively new. But the fact is, is that that's the way we look at the world. That's the way we understand how things work. And I became convinced as a consequence of reading God's Word that it was the only real source of truth. It was the only thing in which I could base my profession of faith on. The consequences of a biblical worldview, if the world hates you, Jesus said to his disciples on that night before he was crucified, if the world hates you, you will know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The fact is, holding to and professing a biblical worldview will not be a popular thing in this day and age. As I referred before, this individual who was the chairman of the committee in Texas that was debating the whole changes in the textbook composition uh, happened to be a born-again believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't have to be around him very long to know he was a believer, and he was not ashamed of what he believed. But I'm going to tell you, you talk about a person who was vilified, 
marginalized, criticized, in every sense of the word. As a matter of fact, the conclusion you could have, you would reach as a consequence of watching this PBS documentary is that anybody who had a biblical worldview, who believed in intelligent design, was the next, next thing to a bigot. Simple that. If you believe that way, you were a bigot. End of argument. No sense even discussing anything further, much less all the implications of intelligent design. Because you're just too ignorant to understand. It's not popular to hold to a biblical worldview. I want you to know that. That is a consequence of if you decide that this is, if you are a believer indeed in a biblical worldview, you probably have already experienced some of this. Because it is obviously contrary to all the aspects of our culture today. From sociology, to government, to you just name it. Any discipline, practically. It stands absolutely juxtaposed to it. So I I just challenge you this morning in this, as we close. Think about what your biblical worldview is. Become an apologist for the faith. Study the Word of God. Study nature. Study biology. Study psychology. Study philosophy and theology and economics and politics and history and all those other disciplines that are relevant to building the biblical worldview we talked about. We do not have to be ignorant. And because you believe in the divinely inspired Word of God as being a solid foundation on which to build, you do not have to be ashamed. Just remember this. They hated him who you profess as Savior. And they'll hate you. But the thing is, is that in Christ Jesus, we stand on solid rock, a foundation that cannot be shaken. And I challenge you this morning to think of all the implications of creating and developing that biblical worldview and what God means to accomplish through you in the world today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that your word is true truth indeed. It is trustworthy. Because, Father, you are trustworthy. You're the creator. You made us, and you've known us from the beginning of the world, God, even from the foundation of the world. Before they were laid, Father, you knew that we would be according to your divine foreknowledge. You are an awesome God. And, Father, there are things we cannot even begin to comprehend. And man is so foolish enough that he thinks he can. But, Father... Your ways are not our ways. You are as far above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you that you have given us a mind to think. You have given us, Lord, the freedom of choice. You have given us a spirit that's been born again of your spirit, knowing that we are your children. And Lord, we thank you for that fact. We thank you that, God, we can explore the word and understand that your spirit leads us into understanding in every aspect and phase of our life. Do so, Lord Jesus, so that we might glorify your name, that you alone might be exalted and lifted up. It is in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ that we pray and ask these things. Amen.